Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. And uh, we've got a packed house today because we've got a lot to talk about. Very excited to have back Jim Cooper, editorial director for Adweek. Jim, how are you? I'm great, David. How are you? I'm good. It's good to have you back on. We've also got back, is this is this like three three weeks running, Sarah, Sarah Jurdy, digital media reporter. Is it? Are we on like a three-episode stretch here? Yeah, I'm pretty sure the past three weeks I've been on. I'm just going to hand it, hand the, hand the mic to you she's taking, from here on out. She's taking over. <laughs> it's like, this is how you find out you're actually the host now. <laughs> it's like the ring. <laughs> once, once you've looked at it, you have to take it over and spread it. Uh, we've also got back a uh, frequent guest, Doug Zanger, uh, editor on the Creative and Agencies Beat. Uh, Doug, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. All right. So we have got two big things we want to talk about today. One is one of the biggest events or series of events in the advertising world each year. The New Fronts is coming up. We're going to talk about, remind everyone what those are, if you don't live in the world that cares about such things. And we're going to talk about the cool trends uh, coming out of that, 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 you know, they do apply to the rest of us, even if you're not buying and selling digital ads. Uh, there's some really fascinating stuff in our um, in our write-up uh, this week in the print edition that Jim did a roundtable uh, with a lot of the biggest leaders in this space uh, from across the, the many realms. Of, of digital, and he's going to tell us what they had to say about some of those big trends they're seeing. We're also going to talk about our first experiential awards, uh, honoring experiential marketing, the best of it, uh, the best agencies, talent, uh, and of course, big, cool experiential projects. So with that, let's get to it. All right. So Jim, um, first, why don't you give us a reminder about what are the new fronts? I think some people may be familiar with the upfronts, uh, which came along first, the big, big kind of TV, annual TV ad selling where the networks get out and tell all these potential advertisers, here's why you should be buying ads with us. What is the new fronts? Yeah, so the New Fronts are uh, about a decade-old week event that's usually held in New York City um, that's basically uh, sort of the counter to the upfront marketplace uh, in terms of a nonlinear sort of 
alternative video forms. Um, the upfronts obviously are, are focused on, you know, cable and network TV. New fronts uh, are more focused on digital video products. Um, and the um, the attempt by uh, those publishers to shift dollars in, in from the marketplace uh, from the traditional marketplace to this new marketplace, um, and that's happened with mixed results. I mean, I think it's been a slow build, but uh, slowly but surely, um, I think as the world transforms, uh, they're seeing some significant dollar shifts into. Uh, streaming and OTT platforms, you know, obviously Hulu and Twitter, um, Google, YouTube, and Viacom are big players, uh, all sort of you know vying for um, you know those dollars to shift again from sort of traditional television to these new new formats. Um, it's a week long event here in New York. It had been two weeks historically, uh, but last year they split it in two, and they do one in New York, obviously, and then they do a week in Los Angeles in the fall. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, anyone who's been in L.A. professionally in recent years, you know, you don't have to go very far in Santa Monica or Culver City to really kind of see how it's becoming this new hub of digital content. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it's like kind of the I'm not going to call it the new Hollywood, you know, just yet. But, man, that area has just exploded with digital content creators. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the strategy. They, they saw that trend. Um, I think there was some fatigue having a, a full two weeks, which is a lot of uh, you know time to sort of devote to having a media buyer spend two weeks uh, in New York going to all these events here was just too much. And, and also they saw, again, this sort of burgeoning culture that you're mentioning out in Los Angeles really start taking off. Sarah, this is not your first New Fronts Rodeo, right? No, this is my second. And so what what did you think uh, covering them last year? I mean, is it a is it a crazy dog and pony show the way that the upfronts can be? Uh, I mean, I know we, we talk about things like, what is it, Brandcast? Is that the YouTube one where they go... They go a little bonkers, but like, how how crazy are these things? Um, I mean, they're they're interesting shows to watch. A lot of the times, they'll bring on talent that's going to be featured in the new programming, and um, you know, sometimes they have artists perform on stage. Um, it's really, you know, a time, I guess, for them to celebrate the content that they're going to be offering advertisers. So a lot of times, it's fun just to kind of be in the room and feel that sort of energy. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned, YouTube always puts on a good show and we have, uh, Ellen digital coming and they always have a fun time with it. So there's, there's fun to be had at these for sure. I I feel like Jim, I'm going to throw out a few of my, my like weird, these are not things I've heard other people necessarily talk about, but my weird stereotypes with new fronts of like the kind of stuff that comes out of it is there's always some celebrity who's talking about their, their new digital project. Like, uh, you know, it's it's James Franco talking about how he's going to launch a, a Yahoo, you know, a series on Yahoo. <laughs> and like it's, you know, it's just every year it's just like big Hollywood celebrity is going to be doing a series on this site that you never think of going to for content. Um, you know, that that's one. And then I always like nine months later or maybe a year later when we start talking about this again, I always go back. like, What, what happened to that? It's like, oh, it ran as a six part series and not many people watched it. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the bar to entry is relatively low, at least historically for like a celebrity <laughs> sort of like having these passion projects on some of the smaller platforms. I will say, I think that the trend that I'm seeing this year is I think there'll be less of that. And, you know, there since there are less uh, presenters, they're really going to be focusing on some really pretty hefty issues that are, are sort of they've got to get around chiefly brand safety. So I think I, I, I would suspect that this year's new fronts are going to have much more like a grown up tone than they have had in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, so it's not going to be so much like, the, you know, look at all this bang and sizzle. It's going to be like, we will not put you next to Nazis. <laughs> Ideally, that's that, that's 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 what they're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Sarah, what, what were you about to say? Well, I was just saying, um, kind of picking off of that, last year brand safety was really at the forefront of discussion. So now we have year two um, talking about that. And then also we have all these different OTT and streaming opportunities themselves starting to mature. Um, so it makes sense that, you know, these publishers and companies are, are trying to chase that as well. I mean, as we've talked about on, the, you know, in the, these last few episodes when we've had Sarah on, that this idea of advertisers really even having a place, a playground to play in the in the streaming. And for those who don't know, OTT is, you know, over the top. Uh, it's just uh, a term for these, these kind of subscription or on- online streaming services. Uh, but, you know, for a long time, the ones we thought about, uh, you know, Netflix and Prime, there's really not a lot of advertising in those. But now we've talked about with Viacom buying Pluto TV and Hulu, you know, the Hulu free uh, service is becoming more popular because it's getting bundled with, you know, other things. And so, you know, there's, it just feels like there's more, there's more room for advertisers in the mainstream streaming space now. One of the, one of the really interesting things that came out of the roundtable discussion was that, um, you know, players like Hulu and Viacom um, really are interested in the DTC space and the Can Challenger brand space because they sort of see them as sort of kindred spirits. Um, they're open to experimentation. There's a lot of experimentation in the OTT streaming space right now with formats and interactive ads. So uh, I think that's going to be an interesting trend to see um, what Challenger brands and then the direct-to-consumer, how they're going to play with Hulu and Viacom and Twitter and that that's that that sort of surprised me, but it does make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of like with podcasts. Like podcast ads are a bit fluid, right? Like we haven't really. I mean, we joke that oh, there's the you know inner promo code ad week into you know I don't know whatever subscription service. Like that's how a lot of po- podcast ads do. But some are really innovative and some are really inventive and try different things. And I'm kind of shocked sometimes that streaming the ads in streaming video haven't been more experimental. You know what I mean? A lot of it's just been like, here's a six-second cut of our TV ad. Um, You know, I've been watching a lot of Killing Eve. I'm currently binging Killing Eve on uh, Hulu. And, you know, it's like the same uh, six-second Hornitos uh, tequila ads (laughs) over and over. And part of me is just like, man, you could be doing so much with this, especially when you get into some of these, uh, you know, with people watching these in interactive formats or on a tablet. Um, But yeah, I mean, do you feel like that there is room within the industry for them, for folks to start experimenting with these things and having a little more fun with what they could be doing with these, you know, direct-to-consumer ads? Yeah, 100%. I I do think Hulu, I, I would give Hulu some credit there, I think that they're probably pretty far out ahead of most of the, the com- competitors in terms of experimentation on ad formats. They're really sort of leaning pretty hard into the interactive, and you know they're they're very happy to sell you you know a fifteen or a six or a thirty, but they they have a fairly broad quiver of things to offer advertisers um, if they want to step up to them. Um, the other interesting trend I thought was cool was just the whole notion of the, the this sort of growing tension between subscription video on demand and free um, video on demand or AVOD. Um, Viacom is is betting that with their acquisition of Pluto that people um, are, who are very price conscious are going to want to go back to free television and uh, accept advertising as part of that uh, value exchange. And they're, they're really sort of thinking that that is a great way for them to sort of, you know, sort of reinvigorate the sort of classic sort of MTV networks um, 
uh, you know, nameplates, and um, and they're betting that there's going to be a lot of viewing um, of this, um, not necessarily on a, a clickable environment or a mobile environment, but a lot of it, that viewing is going to happen in the living room, and that's kind of the the, the rationale behind the Pluto um, acquisition, and they're, just, they're, they're betting that people are just going to want to be uh, more price conscious going forward, and that free TV is going to be interesting to them in this OTT and streaming space. Mm-hmm. We're not too far away either from Disney and Apple's announcements about what their streaming services are going to look like, too. So it'll be interesting to watch to see how much that's part of the conversation, these presentations, too. You know, how how much OTT is going to play a part um, because, you know, it's it's definitely an opportunity to stand out from the crowd if you're able to offer um, really nice ad packages on OTT. Well, I think that I think whoever cracks that is going to be so far ahead because to to David's point, where you know if you're watching something on a particular service, you see the same three ads rotating over and over and over again, and I think I think you become resentful, not necessarily of the platform, but you become resentful of the brands. It's like, oh God, this Verizon ad again. Um, so I, I think if, whoever cracks that first, I, I think is going to have a good head start because we we talk a lot about the overall customer experience or consumer experience. And if you're creating something that's very pleasing, then people will, they won't necessarily uh, consciously flock there, but that'll be something that'll be a nice surprise for them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm only half joking here when I say that if I'm going to have to watch the same Subaru ad, you know, on every commercial break, at least let me have like a choose your own adventure of like, what, you know, just give me something, some, mm-hmm. some, uh, what do they call it? Agency in the, you know, when, when you talk about interactive experiences, you want the user to have some agency in, in what happens and not just be sitting there, uh, watching it. Uh, and, and this maybe is a little tangential, but I had a fascinating conversation with PJ Pereira, uh, the founder of Pereira and Odell, when we crossed paths recently. And he was on a he was running a jury about interactive experiences. And someone was arguing, is this an interactive site or is it just an animation that you're watching? And he said, Well, I would I would propose that if you sit still and let something uh, let something happen in digital without interrupting it, without skipping it when you have the option that you've, you've made a choice, that you have interacted with it. And it's just kind of interesting, this idea of sometimes if you can't, can skip something and choose not to, that's its own form of interaction. Anyway, it's, you know, I just think there's a lot, a lot of room there for these advertisers to play around. But let's, let's talk about some other trends that came up. We talked briefly about brand safety already, but I do because of how huge that is. Um, you know, Sarah, let, let's let's back it up for folks who don't live in this world every day and just talk about what we mean when we say brand safety and why it's become such an increasing uh, increasing issue in the la- in the last you know two years. Yeah, I mean, I think well, I mean, the news cycle for sure has been putting some interesting headlines, and um, it's it's all about what kind of advertisements you want next to the content that you're being served. Um, so you don't want an ad on on something. That you you know that would be terrible for that that advertiser, um, so that that conversation really took hold last year, like I mentioned, and then I expect that to be even more even more mature this year. Now that we have another year on on what the opportunities are there and what the challenges are there for these different companies. Yeah, and so and so when we talk about you know brand safety, uh, and Jim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like what we're primarily saying is that. If you're gonna if you're gonna use something like uh, you know programmatic, where basically your ads are put out there wherever the the AI thinks they will perform best or wherever they will be the best fit, you want to have some confidence that that doesn't mean they're gonna pop up next to conspiracy videos about 9/11 or uh, you know some weird new meme 
about you know telling kids to hurt themselves or something like that. I mean that that's kind of the what these these advertisers are going to be looking for, right? Yeah, I mean I think that's uh, it's it, in the past it has been sort of the wild west for brands and they've been burned um, over and over again. And I think that there's you know a line that's been drawn in the sand by them that there's not going to they're not not going to play if there's even that the the you know the faint threat that they might land next to something um, that would make them look terrible. Um, and you know, for the most part, I think the the platforms have have heard that um, and have worked pretty hard to you know make it as safe as possible. But it's it, it's still an issue, and it it will continue to be an apex uh, discussion point between you know you know the brands and their agency partners looking to shift dollars. Um, you know, they don't they their appetite for that is is virtually nil. So um, that is still going to be a very tough discussion point between the. Between, between them, but I, I do think there's been progress made, but it's something that you know it's going to take a very long time before the, the environment is completely sanitary. Yeah, and we've seen just in the last uh, what six months that some companies will leave a site like YouTube and and not come back. You know, they'll be like, "Well, we're taking all of our toys and going home." If they just have no faith in the corporate culture, so it feels like this the new fronts is kind of an ideal time to create that faith, right? To show like we are, we not only are talking about this, but we are actually making some headway uh, and we're making it at the speed that, that you know, it's a, you can't say like, well, 90% of your ads will not be next to terrorist videos. <laughs> like you kind of have to say it's going to be 100%. And that's what we've seen with these major advertisers saying like YouTube can't, can't earnestly promise me 100%, so I'm going to leave. Right. So the um, – I mean I think that YouTube is you know, probably the, the, the area that, that is probably most um, sensitive at the moment. Um, you know, we, we spoke to Tara Walpert-Levy as part of the uh, roundtable. And she, you know, she, you know, she is very, she's very clear that, that they understand the import, import of you know, making their environment as safe as possible. Um, but you know, it's, it's a challenging place. It's a UGC um, environment um, with a lot of great content, but there's a lot of poison there too. So they they have to do a lot of back-end work, a ton of back-end work to make it as safe as possible. I mean, I think that she was saying that in general, you know, they've, they've reached a like almost a 99% uh, safety percentage uh, rate. Um, you know, we'll have to see if that's actually true. But uh, I, you know, she seemed uh, you know to be very intent on this, and I think that you know they have to be. To your point, David, because brands will will walk away if if they get um, if they land someplace bad. Yeah, it, it seems like Sarah. Am, am I wrong in thinking that there's kind of emerging these two these two types of digital video places? You've got you've got curated content, you know, where basically they they know everything that's on their network, and obviously brand safety is a pretty easy sell for them. Um, and then you've got user-generated content uh, hubs where this is just always going to be an issue that, they, that they're going to have a hard time saying they've got a 100% lock on. Right. Yeah. I mean, with all the user-generated content, there's no way to know what's, what can be uploaded at any second. Um, but, I mean, it's an interesting discussion to have because you can look at a platform, too, like Facebook, and what role and what responsibility do they have when it is concerning the content that's on their platforms. Um, but to Jim's point, I mean, I think they're all very conscious, at, uh, at least to YouTube's credit. I think they're very conscious that this is an issue and something that they have to solve. Um, but brand safety is a great example of, you know, it takes something a really long time, even if everyone has this on their radar to bring about some change in this industry. I mean, it's something that's not going to happen overnight. Um, and it's clear that it, it can't with something like brand safety. Do you ever think it's going to be solved, though? I mean, be honest. 
I just don't think it's ever going to be solvable. Yeah, I mean, I think it can get a lot better, though. I think we still have a lot, a lot of issues there. Um, I mean, when we saw. Um, the, the church burnham in Paris. Notre Dame. Yeah, and the, and the ads that appeared and, and the 9-11 conspiracy pop-ups that came up with that. I mean, that that, that was a, that was a setback for sure. Well, I remember someone posted a screenshot the other day. I haven't tested this myself, but it was the very first video ever uploaded to YouTube. And then someone did a if, – if it had been recorded in 2019 – uh, and then when you searched for the for just for the name of that video, you get the original, you get the new one, and right in between, you get a nine eleven conspiracy video. <laughs> and it was just like Ugh, that just must be a kick in the gut, you know, for for the YouTube folks because like they, they, it's not to say they don't do anything, but there was some coverage this past week of how Twitter, you know, really effectively drove ISIS off of Twitter off the platform, but has n- not had that kind of success with white supremacy uh, for reasons that you know seem seem to be kind of some of these political questions around, well, you know, are those as bad as terrorists? And, and you know, a lot of people are like, yeah. Uh, so I think sometimes it comes down to defining, uh, what, you know, what do we think is should be 100 percent banned? Uh, and, you know, for me, like I, I come down pretty hard against conspiracy videos and, uh, you know, as, as, like as a human being, but also as a parent, you know, it's just those are the ones that scare me. It's not like, oh, my kid might see someone naked. Like that's way less of a scary thing to me than like, oh, my kid may get sucked into this QAnon bullshit world, you know. Of, and so it's 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 tough and it's ever changing like those. I wouldn't have given that example a year ago. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a hard it's a hard job, but Does this come I think down they can do a lot more. Does this come down to regulation? I mean, because if you think about it, TV is regulated to to a degree, at least, you know, over the air. I mean, is this where we're headed? I mean, does this is this a way to fix it? I mean, I would have thought that the regulation would have actually come sooner, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've you know, we've let we've let them play this whack-a-mole game for for quite some time. Um, it was only really until the, the brands stood up for themselves and said, we're just not going to take this anymore, that they really, frankly, got serious about it. So I think the whack-a-mole will continue, but they just have to sort of start spending on the, the technology back end to, to really sort of, again, sanitize their environments as, as thoroughly as, as possible. That's going to be incredibly expensive, and, um, but I think for their long-term viability, they've got to do it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one. Uh, this is a small issue, but it really jumped out at me because I was like, oh, man, that's such a good point. Someone brought up in your roundtable product placement and how product placement is kind of like no matter how things change, the platform, the the ad units, all that product placement, that's a pretty good investment, right? Uh, because it'll live wherever. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Jim, tell us a little bit more about that just because I thought that was such a great point. Yeah. I mean, I think the product placement is it's, it's almost – quaint at this point, but uh, it's relatively safe and effective. You know, you, there's the product and it's, it's, it's in the content and it's, it's, there's no ambiguity to it. Um, and uh, again, seems like it would be, you know, frowned upon, but it, actually it's not, if, unless it's something that's completely out of control, mm-hmm. but it's, 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 it's sort of like direct market, you know, sort of outreach and it's, it's there and, um, Again, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, uh, and it doesn't need to necessarily be more sophisticated um, or, or have technology later layered onto it. So, mm-hmm. it's always like a sort of nice baseline uh, a marketing option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's been done so like that. We had that period right uh, for a few years where it was being done so poorly. And like so ham-handedly, Let, let's just for fun, I'm going to use this as an excuse to listen to one of my favorite clips ever, uh, the Hawaii Five O episode. 
that included a lengthy uh, uh, homage to the teriyaki chicken sandwich at Subway. Let's listen to that. Crime fighters? Pretty good. You uh, you own a shrimp truck, but you're bringing lunch to work. Trying to be smarter, brother. Shrimp, perfectly healthy. Not the way I make them, but this Subway sandwich, so ono. Okay, so you're eating these to lose weight. Is that, is that right? It worked for Jared, and that boy was large. But the best thing about it, they make it any way you want it. Check this one. It's sweet onion chicken teriyaki with jalapenos and banana peppers. Now you put that with this, turkey BLT, bam! There's some serious culinary fusion. So how many of these did you order? Five. Five footlongs. It was a good deal. And I got breakfast for tomorrow. So, I mean, I think that shows how bad it can get. But luckily, things started to kind of pull up after that. And and we, as people who literally write about advertising every day, we don't see these kind of garish product placements as much anymore. They're still there. You still see logos. You still, still see stuff. Sometimes it's even built into the plot. But I just think that the writers have gotten a little better about factoring it in. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, I'm, I mean, that that clip actually kind of made me a little nostalgic. It was so. It's, it's sometimes the, the, the super garish ones were almost you know so funny that they, they really were effective. <laughs> but yeah, no, they're, they, they, you know the sophistication of, of dropping products into um, you know into these environments has gotten a lot more clever and thoughtful. I will say, too, Hulu has made some pretty big waves um, with this, with brand integration. I mean, they designed, they partnered with Range Rover on a car that the main character of one of their original programs released this year drove around. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't totally obvious, but you did see the car driving throughout the landscape. Um, But they're being really smart about working those sorts of things into the plot early on when they're developing this original programming. Um, And so it'll be interesting to see, too, where else they can take that next year. I think Silicon Valley is always my favorite to watch for, like, because you never know, is this paid? I don't think most of them are. I think a lot of it is just, like, uh, you know, we'll let you use that or we'll, you know, because it's it's gotten cool. Like, famously, there's a, what's his name, Evan Spiegel from Snapchat, like, spoke at a funeral on Silicon Valley um, and, uh, and you know, used it as, like, to make fun of Snap, to make fun of himself. It makes sense. So, like, sometimes it even goes beyond product placement where it's, like, the actual executives get involved because they think it's so entertaining. Uh, so, you know, it's been done in some pretty fun ways. I mean, I, th- well, I think the product placement, I'm sorry, David, uh, the product placement is sort of, sort of like the uh, primi- pr- primal ooze that sort of led to brand storytelling. I mean, if you, you sort of, you see the the evolution of putting um, a Coke can in a spot to having, you know, a, a full, like, story mm-hmm. about the product and I think that that's been sort of an interesting evolution mm-hmm. well um, definitely encourage everyone if you're into any of these topics check out uh, Jim's New Fronts Roundtable in the print edition and on our website uh, this week I uh, got really this incredible VIP crowd on there you know representatives from Hulu and Twitter and YouTube and Ellen and and you know the it's so many great folks on there uh, so definitely check it out and with that we're going to move on to our big winners in our first ever experiential awards all right so our experiential awards adweek's experiential awards this is the first year we did them 
Uh, and I think we've talked about on here, man, we just got flooded with entries. Uh, so it's just one of those signs that we all kind of were like, you know, we should have one. We should have an award <laughs> show that really honors this, uh, you know, because it fits into a few of our uh, existing awards, uh, Project Isaac and, uh, and a few others, but it really deserved its own kind of podium. Um, and man, just the response was so staggering. Uh, you know, Jim, uh, you, me, Doug, many, many other editors were on the judging uh, committee uh, for for these awards, and you know, not to not to imply this is a bad way to spend your afternoon or whatever, but it just kept going. Like those entries, <laughs> there no, were never so ended. many, never ended. And you and you have to watch, you know, a pretty lengthy video about each one. Um, and I kept thinking, well, eventually they'll just overlap, and I'll be watching the same ones in different categories. And there was a little of that, but man. So many. I ended up watching just hundreds of clips uh, as we were going through these. Um, but uh, what did you think of this process, Jim, in terms of kind of where we started and, and the types of entries that we ended up getting and then what we ended up honoring? Uh, you know, how did you feel about the whole process? Yeah, I mean, I think that was uh, – this sort of came out of you know, sort of lots of discussions last year. We were just sort of watching um, – you know, obviously, as you know, people uh, get more ad avoidant, uh, brands have to sort of find their way to, um, to to consumers and consumer journeys. Uh, and you know, we saw this sort of creative lift uh, around the experiential space. Um, and so we said, well, let's 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 check that out and let's find a, a way to sort of do an events platform. And we we launched one. We thought maybe we'd get you know a couple hundred. Entries wound up. We got almost seven hundred entries. Uh, to your point, David, it, it, it definitely sort of sort of tapped this 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 vein. Um, and it was uh, yeah, it was a lot of work to go through all those submissions. But I have to say that the, the work that came in was uh, really in- incredible. I mean, there was some garbage in there, but like the, the for the most part, uh, the stuff that I judged, I was you know thrilled to to either see again because I'd seen it or I hadn't seen it at all. And you know, over you know, sort of a very large um, you know fan of, of categories, you you got to see a a, a nice a, a array of the work that's being done in the experiential space um, and across a bunch of very very interesting categories. So yeah, it was it was it was a a, a win and uh, surprisingly uh, powerful for us. The uh, you know, I think what became clear too is is how important experiential is becoming for media companies for uh, content companies. You know, it's just a way to introduce your content, your shows, your characters, or introduce them or celebrate them. Uh, and that's something we'll talk about more in a second. But I was really impressed with how many how many uh, marketers, but then also just uh, you know, media companies, content creators were able to build not just experiences, not just to like come by and this pop-up, you know, we're talking like two-day festivals, <laughs> you know, it's like people built massive engagement. Uh, and so I guess that was the big trend I noticed this year is that there were a few light touches, like, you know, you go into this thing and take some pictures and then you leave and move on with your life. Uh, but then there were also ones where multi-day events, um, you know, massive, like we're not talking necessarily Coachella, but I mean, some pretty huge uh, events. Uh, I should say up front, uh, a few of the big winners, Comedy Central uh, won our Experiential Brand of the Year and also our Rising 
uh, experiential rising star of the year is Emily Albertson from Comedy Central. Uh, and then agency of the year, probably not a big surprise to people paying attention to this space. It is Giant Spoon, uh, who was also our breakthrough agency of the year uh, for all agencies uh, outside of experiential. Uh, probably best known for a lot of their HBO work uh, at South by Southwest, at the Westworld uh, one last year, and then Westeros uh, for Game of Thrones this year. Uh, and uh, Mark Simons, the co-founder of Giant Spoon, uh, was our experiential executive of the year. Uh, so those are kind of the the big winners. Um, but uh, I, I did want to talk through a few of the uh, specific ones. So one that we've seen uh, quite a bit, uh, especially I remember at Cannes, it won a it won a Grand Prix in this space. Uh, the The Daily Show presents the Donald J. Trump presidential Twitter library. Uh, this was kind of a walk through mu- museum uh, in the vein of kind of making fun of how. Presidential libraries are obviously a thing going back for many, many, many years. Uh, and what would a uh, Donald Trump presidential library look like? Obviously, he doesn't do a lot of reading, but he sure does a lot of tweeting. Uh, <laughs> so they they built a, a Twitter library that just shows some of his uh, kind of obviously all making fun of him. Uh, but, Jim, what do you think they did? You know, this is a concept that could have been really minimalist, right? Like, hey, look at these tweets. They're kind of dumb. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but, you know, they built it into something. They kind of took it to that next level. What, what was it about this that, um, that, that you know, ended up winning, uh, you know, some of our most creative effect- effectiveness awards? And what was it about it that, that you thought they really nailed? I mean, I really think that it was um, – I think you're right. It could have been very dry, but they made it their own. They made it funny. Um, you know, th- th- you know, they have this red light that would go off in the, uh, in the activation space every time – um, Mr. Trump tweeted. Um, so it was it, w- it was a very clever idea, you know, s- very simple insight about the president um, that pe- you know people um, can be snarky about. But they made it their own, and they made it funny, and then they they made this presidential library, which is like just this really simple idea, but it's it's perfectly on brand for them. And I think that one of these things, when they're perfectly on brand, they they are super effective, and I think the Comedy Central just nailed it. Let's listen to a little of the setup of that experience uh, and uh, hear how how the case study gets introduced. Hello, and welcome to The Daily Show presents the Donald J. Trump Presidential Twitter Library. Every president has had a presidential library in some capacity or form. But since this president doesn't really read, we thought that we would create and curate a magnum opus to his greatest work of art, his tweets. All right. So another uh, another one I wanted to hit up in terms of a big winner in, in the category of five million dollar plus. So pretty big experiential activations we're talking here uh, was ComplexCon as Complex Networks um, did this again to, to the thing I was talking about earlier, just these conventions slash festivals. Uh, you know that that had Migos and Future, and you know that we're talking huge brands on uh, Nike and Adidas, and all it, were there. Um, Jaden Smith was unveiling a new line of denim. You know, it just became this cultural event. And <clears throat> I have to admit, like a few years ago, I would have been pretty skeptical of the idea of of branded events. Uh, being something that people really went out of their way to go to, but this was one. You know, that I think they kind of complex nailed it. Uh, 
better than any any of the others. But man, there were so many of these. HBO had a bunch of, a bunch of different events, you know, that, where they built festivals out of their shows. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Zanger, I, I felt like this was probably the biggest trend I noticed is just, man, a lot of people building festivals and packing them out, man. People turned out for these things. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it makes a lot of sense to just the, the pull through of a brand. And I think that that everyone is sensing an opportunity that, okay, we have this thing. So using HBO as an example, we have this network, we have these shows, we have these movies, et cetera, et cetera. But how can we really just continue to solidify our, our, our space with consumers? And I think it's not so much just that they, uh, you know, these companies are putting these things together and, and creating this festival environment. I think what's really interesting is that they're tapping into the fact that we're in such a shareable society right now. That investment of, say, $10 million could lead to over a billion dollars worth of earned media. So, you know, you think about any sort of activation and, and especially some of our winners, that earned media that comes out of this stuff has, has really proven to, you know, it, it's really accelerating now. So brands are getting savvy to that. And, you know, to your point earlier, David, it's like, you know, you could do some little pop up and you might get a little bit of a hit. But if you take it to that next level, you get yourself you really are injecting yourself into culture. And when you start doing that, that becomes more than, than just an ad. Um, and yeah, and complex con is one that, you know, I'm dying to go to cause it just, it looks so interesting and I'll probably be the oldest person there. But, um, but you know, I, I just, I think that people are learning that some of these bigger events like this can just yield so much fruit. One category that definitely seemed to be, just dominating in this space. Like we talked about media and networks. Um, I think uh, spirits brands and beer brands. Yeah. Man, we, we could have had a whole award just for, you know, an entire award show just for those and ha- and still have given away like 200 trophies. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the big winner in our spirits brand category was Havana Club uh, did this immersive theatrical experience that about the history cool. of the- That was cool. That was cool. <laughs> And and so the you know the fascinating thing about Havana Club and and we've I think we've reported on this a little bit in the past but essentially it's this weird kind of um, what do you call it like brand confusion in the marketplace where Havana Club is a, is a type of rum uh, that's there's two of them essentially there's one that's sold uh, through. Yeah, maybe makes it up, but you know, Puerto Rico, I think, uh, and then and then of course it's from Cuba, and so there's the the so-called real Havana clubs still sold in Cuba, and now and once they start talking about you know opening up borders with Cuba and letting them bring in stuff, there was this all this discussion among spirits folks about oh, does that mean we're going to have both Havana clubs in the U.S. marketplace? More likely, one of them would have to change their name, uh, like that's happened in the past. With there was Budweiser beer in uh, in Czech Republic, like when it finally came to America, they made them change the name because there was already a Budweiser. Uh, they had to change their name to uh, Czechvar. Uh, so, I mean, this has happened before. Uh, but Havana Club, what's interesting is that the one that you would think is the authentic one, the one from Cuba, is not the authentic one. <laughs> it's the one that that basically the communist government launched uh, to kind of to own the name again because the family that created Havana Club fled during the communist revol- revolution. So this is like they basically put on a play about that history to help, uh, you know, to help 
remind people like we are the real one even though we're not in cuba <laughs> like it, we actually are uh you know and so i i just thought that was a great idea and you know whether too many people would sit through an entire play about the history of a spirits brand i don't know um but in terms of kind of the challenge facing them uh i i, I thought that was a great fit uh jim did you, anything jump out to you in terms of spirits and and you know beer brands it just seemed like they flooded the zone this year. Yeah, I mean, I especially like the Havana Club um, activation just because it was sort of a mashup of great storytelling. Um, it really brought you in. It was like, oh, this is an incredible story. Uh, but then it made it an activ- yeah, experiential activation too with, with the play. So I thought, you know, of, of the of the spirit and beer uh, submissions, I thought that one was the, the, the most uh, – you know, that sort of drew me in and, and grabbed me. Um, I have to say a quick rest in peace to Payless. Oh, <laughs> which that's too went, bad. went bankrupt oh. shortly after uh, the launch of their best marketing campaign of all time. That stinks when that happens. It almost um, like like two days after we gave them the award too. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those but, things happen. Luckily, their agency survives, DCX Growth Accelerator, uh, which has does some some really interesting stuff. They. Uh, you know, but but yeah, Pelesi. Just to remind everyone, so Payless made a uh, a fake fashion house for shoes for Italian shoes, or whatever, called Pelesi. They did it perfectly. It was so well done, and then they charged these outlandish prices for shoes that, and then broke it to people when they actually went to buy them. Like those shoes actually only cost like nineteen dollars. Um, it was you know it was brilliant. It a lot of people felt it really kind of showed the emperor's new you know the emperor's w- wears no clothes. Uh, and like in, when it comes to influencers, you know, that kind of it kind of revealed a lot of the, you know, that maybe you shouldn't take everything influencers say uh, about brands <laughs> as, as the, the <laughs> gospel think? truth. Um, but, yeah, it just goes to show, too. I mean, I know a lot of people were like, oh, it was, if it was so effective, why would they go bankrupt? I'm like, man, if you really think one good activation is going <laughs> to save <laughs> a national retail chain from going out of business. I've got bad news about marketing. Uh, but still, Sarah, I mean, this was like one of the most fun activations I think we've we've written about maybe ever. Yeah, it, it was it was a fun one. I um not to sound like the millennial in the room, but I do but think you are. <laughs> but I am. Um so I do think though that this is a fun way to engage kind of the like core young millennial audience. Um these are super popular. People are willing to go and um poke fun at, at the brand or experience the brand in a new way and kind of get offline and and experience something together in person. Um yeah, so the Pelesi pay less, that was a, a pretty good stunt and kind of poked fun at themselves in a, in a smart way. Maybe too much. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did want to talk about one of the big uh, tear jerkers, one of the, the real heartstring tuggers, uh, which is impressive, honestly, when experience could do that. It's one thing to make like a five-minute ad um, around like a stunt or something, you know, where we, we, you know, these people's dads were coming back from the war and like, you know, stuff like that. That's kind of easy to, to make emotional – to make an emotional experiential campaign – is is really hard, and I would say is one of the rarest. Uh, the Tennessee Department of love Tourism. It. Love that one. Uh, I'm so glad you brought this one up. Oh, man, I love this So one. Tennessee Department of Tourism uh, created a thing called the Colorblind Viewer. I have to admit I don't really understand exactly how it works, but I understand what it does. Essentially, it was one of those, uh, you know, view scopes, like little binocular things you look through at a scenic overlook, scenic destination. Um, but what it did was it enabled colorblind people to see colors uh, in the the fall 
you know, the fall foliage of Tennessee, which I can tell you, I live, I live in the South, uh, Tennessee, North Carolina, man, I mean, you cannot beat it uh, for incredible views. Um, and so they basically, if you, according to the case study, pretty much everyone who looked through those binoculars immediately just started crying. And just the experience, and it's one of those, like, you see things of, you know, here's a, a baby hearing, you know, its mother's voice for the first time after getting these ear implants. And, and you know, to, to see adults going through that, so compelling, you know, and just so, such a great idea, such an ambitious idea, uh, and then just such a clear impact on folks Um this was VML YNR. Uh, before the, those got merged together, VML was uh, they were really a leader uh, in the the tourism space, uh, especially in Tennessee. A lot of the work, which is impressive for an agency that was based in Kansas City. But I remember the first time I ever heard about VML was not so much from their windy stuff, which they've gotten really famous for, but it was their tourism stuff because I worked on tourism accounts when I was at an agency, and I was like, wait. Who who the hell is this Kansas City agency winning lions at Cannes <laughs> for <laughs> you know for tourism things in Tennessee? Uh, that's that doesn't happen. That's not heard of. So I was kind of glad to see that VML YNR is really stuck to those roots of doing really fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, just man, what a good piece. Uh, anything else, uh, Jim or Doug, that we should call out uh, or you that you remember? Mine. Even if it, oh, <laughs> you took sorry, mine. Doug. No, it's okay. Uh, I, I mean, I think going back to the, um, going back to the beer and alcohol brands, uh, you know, two very simple ones, but again, I think, you know, you talk about simplicity. Um, there was the free beer for Philadelphia fans winning the Super Bowl. Uh, uh Philly, 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 yeah. Philly. And then the, the victory fridges for, um, for the Cleveland Browns for Bud Light. So to, going back to Jim's earlier point. You know, th- this feels very on brand. And I mean, yeah, you know, the Philly thing is you find five bars that are going to give away free beer. Here are the tokens. But everything that happened outside of it, it just, it, you know, it was, it was just bigger than just giving away free beer. Being a lifelong Philadelphia sports fan and Philadelphia Eagles fan, I, I can attest to that. Uh, and then the victory fridges, it's just, you know, again, these are just kind of quirky, very simple things to execute, but their impact. And again, going back to that whole idea of the of the earned media. Uh, it was just really honestly through the roof. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the ones I felt was most powerful is probably not the m- most uh, you know, high-profile one, but the National Safety Council on Opioid uh, Addiction. That kind of like was stopped me in my tracks. I thought that was incredibly powerful to carve um, – Microcarve faces of people on these these over over prescribed pills and making almost like a a, a death gallery mm-hmm. was really intense. And I think to your point, David, um, you know, there, there, there's emotion and there's power. And I thought I thought this one really sort of stopped me in my tracks. And um, and I thought uh, you know for a, 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 a painful cause, but a very very good cause too to, to help us break our addiction to opioids. Well, that uh, is, I mean, man, we could talk for another hour. There's so many of these. There's so many honorees. There's so many I would love to talk about that didn't even make it to the last round. Um, if you are, you know, I'll put in a quick plug. Hopefully, some of the listeners are going to be at our Elevate Creativity event uh, this coming Wednesday. Um, the, uh, May 1st. Um, but, uh, we're the bridging the real and digital worlds is kind of the whole theme of that event. We're going to be talking a lot about experiential and, uh, and then we're also going to be giving out awards, uh, to our winners from this and announcing some of our last big 
top secret awards of, of our biggest winners. Uh, so you can go to adweek.com slash elevate if you'd like to look at tickets for that. Uh, you can enter the promo code uh, podcast, uh, which will knock it down to uh, the early bird pricing if you want to go to that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a few seats left, but man, it's it's going to be a packed house. Uh, we've had a really huge, and I think a lot of that's just because of the excitement around this topic. Uh, people really love hearing from other uh, marketing experts about what did you do? What did you learn from it? I think the best conversations are going to be the ones kind of off to the side about like, well, what did you guys learn from doing that? Like what, you know, the, the best tips don't always come out in the case studies. Right. <laughs> so I think those real conversations can be more valuable. Um, but Jim, thanks so much for making time for us today. Sure, Dave. It was my pleasure. Anytime. Sarah, I'll see you next week. Great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and Doug, uh, thank you as always for joining. And I will legitimately see you next week in New York. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll all be there for Elevate. It's going to be a blast. Uh, well, thank you again to everybody uh, and to everyone, all the judges that were involved in our first experiential awards, because there were many. There were many judges, and there was so much to go through, so we certainly appreciate everybody. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was edited by Lane McGibney and produced by Anya Fernando with audio production by Josh Rios. Please take a moment, if you haven't already, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help new listeners discover the show. Uh, if you have any questions, you can hit us at podcast at adweek.com. And uh, yeah, we will be back next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.